Hello. These days, mental health is at the forefront of all of our minds. But what we are also seeing is that it's those very people who help us get better when we're sick who are struggling with the worst effects of this particular crisis. In this series, we'll be exploring how mental illness is rising amongst healthcare professionals faster than any other sector of society. And we'll also look at ways that brilliant people around the world are finding new ways to help those who help us. Welcome to the Healing the Healers podcast series with me, Dr. Tapas Mukherjee, Medical Director at the Havas Links Group. And hello from me, Dr. Freddie Lewis, Senior Medical Advisor at Havas Links Group, as we discuss what we in the wider healthcare community can do about it. With special guests from around the UK, mental health experts, and great minds from across the Havas network itself, this series promises to be insightful, emotional at times, and above all else, a timely reminder that mental health challenges can affect any one of us. This podcast will contain references to suicide and mental illness, which may distress you or stir up some unwelcome emotions or memories of mental health issues. So listener discretion is advised if you believe you may be affected. Without further ado, let's jump into this week's episode. We are enormously lucky to be joined today by Professor Michael West, Senior Fellow at the King's Fund, which is a highly prestigious and influential organisation who've been helping to shape and improve healthcare systems across the world for many years now. Michael, thanks for joining us and giving us the opportunity to hear from your wealth of knowledge and experience. I wonder whether we could just kick off, make a start, just asking you a little bit about how you've been involved with this topic through your career. Oh, well, it, first of all, it's a real pleasure to be with you and having this conversation this morning, Freddie. It's such a hugely important and critical issue at the minute. I started working in research in a medical research council unit back in the mid-1980s, studying the experience of staff in healthcare, both student nurses health visitors, then primary health care teams, and that's developed over the years into studies of the experience of staff across all of healthcare, not only in the United Kingdom, but in other countries as well. And what's been clear from all of that research is that the quality of work experience of staff working in health service services is fundamentally related to the quality of care that's provided to patients and the performance of healthcare organisations. So I feel I've had a hugely privileged uh, career, but also feel passionately about the importance of taking care of staff working in healthcare. I guess by what you're saying is that the research shows that it's also about delivering high quality care um, to patients. Um, It's not just about making sure that doctors, nurses, pharmacists, whoever, enjoy their work but it's also about we do that because it improves the quality of care for all our patients and citizens. Yes and as your report points out there's an enormous irony isn't there that uh, we have in healthcare the largest workforce in our countries generally with a focus on promoting the health and well-being of the people of our countries yet in the process a very large proportion of that workforce is experiencing real damage to their own health and well-being as a consequence of the working conditions that they're in. Yeah. Now, Michael, I have to admit to all our listeners that I was lucky enough to expose to some of your work and to hear about, uh, to hear you speak about your work um, when I was working back at central government 
um, working in the strategy unit at the Department of Health um, and social care. And honestly, your kind of framework, your ideology, I guess you might call it around compassionate leadership is one of those topics that has really affected me in my work, but also, to be honest, in every warp in my life, really. Um, I feel like it's applicable to um, all elements of work and also personal life. I really recommend everyone listening to have a look at your work. But maybe you could tell us a little bit about compassionate leadership and what that's about, um, how you got involved with that. Well, thanks, Freddie. That That's kind. I'm, I'm just delighted if the work that I'm doing is helpful and has a positive influence. I mean, I think the starting place is understanding what compassion is. It's um, a core emotional regulation system we have. It's not simply an emotion, it's a motivation. It's a, you know, Paul Gilbert defines it as a sensitivity to suffering in self and others with a commitment to prevent or alleviate it. So it's, a, it's not just caring, it's the motivation to make a difference. And it's core to healthcare. It's what healthcare professionals, I think, in their work lives hold as a core work value. But we also know that compassion is the most important intervention we have in healthcare. From hundreds, thousands of randomised controlled trials and meta-analyses, we see that compassion is the most important, if you like, intervention to promote the health and well-being of people that we have available to us. So the challenge for us in the context of our healthcare organisations in crisis is how do we create the conditions where staff will be even more compassionate to patients, to each other, and to themselves. And the answer to that, of course, is it's about the culture. Well, what's the most powerful influence on culture? We see from the research internationally, it's the behaviour of leaders, what they focus on, what they attend to, what they monitor, and particularly what they portray in their own behaviour. So if we want to create compassionate cultures in healthcare, more compassionate cultures, we have to ensure that leaders are modelling compassion in their leadership. So in practice, what that means is the four behaviours of compassion, attending, understanding, empathising, and then helping, translated into leadership. So leaders having the courage to be present with those they lead and to listen to them, to use Nancy Klein's wonderfully evocative phrase, to listen to them with fascination, Leaders who seek to understand the challenges that staff face through having a dialogue with them. Leaders who empathise with staff to know what it's like to be a nurse on your third 13-hour night shift when you haven't had time to take your rest break. And then leaders who help those they lead. And in the context of leadership, what that means is helping those we lead to do their jobs more effectively by helping to remove the obstacles that get in the way and by helping to ensure... They have the resources they need, the right numbers of staff, the right equipment that works and the right training. And so compassionate leadership is core to how we transform our health and care organisations for the future. Mm. Thank you. And I think that really resonates with some of my experiences of working on the front line. And I guess I think there are some real challenges there. Right. You know, we were talking about leaders who can empathise. And I think... Is there anything around your research which suggests that there are either specific challenges around building leaders who have that either physical or um, uh, 
even availability or even emotional connection to be able to to empathize i think there are challenges um you know i think leaders can feel quite anxious about being particularly senior leaders sometimes being anxious about being present with frontline staff particularly when they're under the kind of pressure that your report describes it takes courage to be present and listening and listen and we've seen you know some leaders do spend time out with staff but what they're doing is comfort seeking tell us everything's okay but real compassionate leadership is what are the problems that I'm not aware of that I can, you know, maybe help with? And it takes courage to seek to understand what staff are experiencing from their perspective, what they understand to be the challenges. And frankly, very often at the moment, the challenges are shortages of staff. People are trying to deliver safe, high quality care with huge staff shortages. And this is not just a um, a problem of some countries. It's a worldwide problem, and and also, um, you know, empathising is about feeling the other person's pain, but without making it our own drama, as it were. And that takes courage too. And then the courage to recognise that compassion ultimately is about how we help, and and that's a challenge for leaders too. So, we do know that those skills can be developed in leaders and indeed in all of us. But part of the problem, I think, is we've created such heavily regulated, uh, you know, compliance-based managerial bureaucracies that people are so busy, leaders are so busy, that often feel con- they often feel constrained in being able to attend, understand, empathise and help And that's hugely ironic because we've known for the last 60 or 70 years from leadership research generally that those four behaviours, attending, understanding, empathising and helping, are critical to effective leadership. Um, And, you know, the most important skill of leaders is listening to those they lead. And the most important task of leaders is helping those they lead to do their jobs more effectively by helping to remove obstacles or ensuring they've got the staffing, the resources they need. So I think the, the, the bureaucratised systems that we've created and the heavily regulated systems, which mean that leaders are spending virtually all of their time in meetings rather than out there listening to staff, means that we are failing in our leadership. Absolutely. And I wonder also whether there's something around cultures of hierarchy as well. I feel like... Um, so often there might be a culture within leadership, within healthcare system structure, which says that almost empathizing, taking time, space to sit with people with their problems um, would almost be seen as a weakness or um, something that's sort of a bit embarrassing or not quite right. The best performing organizations are those where leaders are out there listening to staff who are delivering care, coming to an understanding of the problems that they face together rather than separately, and then working with them to remove systems problems like patient flow pathways um, and also really ensuring that teams feel empowered to work together with leaders to develop solutions to the problems that they face. And we see some of the most extraordinary and brilliant innovations in response to the problems that staff face when 
Frontline teams are given the support by senior leaders and the freedom to develop solutions. I think one of the, you know, we've talked about one of the paradoxes in our healthcare systems that we're damaging the health and well-being of the people we ask to promote health and well-being in our population. The other paradox is we've got the largest, most skilled, most motivated workforce in industry in healthcare, yet we manage them largely through command and control. I mean, it's just absurd. In organisational terms, it's absurd. And, you know, this, I think the, the other point that you make is fundamental, that it's not the role of leaders necessarily to have the solutions to the problems that we face, like staff shortages and chronic work overload, but it is the role of leaders to bring our collective attention to bear on the most difficult problems we face repeatedly again and again. And that's about working together with staff to find solutions. You know, when we looked around the world at different healthcare systems and what was effective and ineffective, the least effective healthcare organisations are those which have hierarchical cultures and that are predominantly target driven. The most effective healthcare organisations are those which develop team-based working with less need for hierarchy and where staff feel empowered and supported to develop and implement solutions to the problems that we face. That's a really interesting topic that I was hoping to talk about is around sort of KPI development and things like that and around the signalling that that can give to a system, to a workforce about kind of what matters here. Um, Is there any evidence around, you know, how we can better produce KPIs, how we can um, measure success or improvement, um, which can really help drive positive behaviours rather than get in the way of that? Yeah, so what we've seen in healthcare organisations is what we came to call the priority thickets. There are so many targets, so many KPIs, so many priorities that no one knows what's important anymore. Do you know what? I mean, it's just incredibly ironic um, and and yet what we see in the most effective organisations and healthcare teams is that there is a clear vision of what we're here for, a clear purpose, whether that's at the level of the organisation as a whole or at the level of the individual team, whether that's a healthcare team or a finance team or an estates team or, a, you know, radiology team. But that that purpose is then translated into four or five or six clear, agreed, challenging goals. So from the organisational level, four or five clear, agreed, challenging goals for what we're here for. Um, In healthcare teams, four or five or six clear, agreed, challenging goals. And so, as I said, we started looking at teams and organisations back in the 1980s. And all of the studies we've done on healthcare teams, whether it's executive teams, breast cancer care teams, primary health care teams, community mental health teams, the axiomatic finding is the most important predictor of their performance is whether they have a limited number, five or six, not 56 or 26, five or six clear, not vague, challenging, not unambitious, and agreed rather than imposed goals. Because that goal setting when it's done at local level is much more intelligent it's appropriate to the context and the most effective organizations have that uh, have that focus and alignment of goals 
at every level of the organization. We need, you know, we need key performance indicators. And what we do and what we do need is to ensure that we're collecting the data throughout our organizations which provide the feedback to individual teams or departments or directorates on how they're making progress against those goals that they've agreed and set aligned to the overall organizational purpose. Yet what we see in healthcare organizations is so much data being collected, so much bureaucratization, that the really important data which teams and organizations need to have the information that guides them towards the achievement of their goals, that information is either absent or lost in the in the undergrowth of all of this data that's being collected. I, I used the phrase earlier, earlier compliance-based bureaucratization. So much of the data is collected to, you know, to try to tell people everything's okay, we're doing everything we should be to the regulators above or to the to the policymakers or the government governmental organizations. I guess it's defensive data, right? Rather than sort of it is. improvement data. Um, and it is. And I suppose it's to that old adage, isn't it? If you try and do everything, you'll probably achieve nothing. Um, and then, you know, here we are talking about the levels of burnout and stress amongst healthcare staff. And a big part of that is that there's not clarity of goals. People are overwhelmed by all these targets, all of this bureaucracy. You know, when nurses go home from work at the end of the day, feeling that they haven't completed all their tasks, what they go home feeling from the data that we see in research evidence is they're really upset because they weren't able to give that elderly patient who was distressed the time and the tension and the care that they felt they should be giving because they a lot of their effort is being spent on completing forms that they have to send here there and everywhere which doesn't help them do their jobs effectively and you know we talked earlier about the direct link between leadership and culture and outcomes we've had you know i've done a lot of work in the united kingdom and in england in the department of health as you mentioned uh, they um uh financed a very large study of the extent to which there were cultures of high quality care across the NHS in England in the in the late aughties and which was really hugely valuable for us in learning about what characterized high quality care cultures but what also was wonderful for me personally was having the privilege to be, to lead the design of the first national staff survey in England in 2003 and that survey has run every year for the last 20 years with over 600,000 people responding. It's an incredible data set. And what the data set show us is that in, an, in a health service organisation, the more staff who report that their leaders attend, understand, empathise and help, in those organisations subsequently what we see is higher levels of staff engagement, higher levels of patient satisfaction, significantly better care quality, as rated by the Care Quality Commission, better use of financial resources and lower avoidable patient mortality. So for all of these reasons, compassionate leadership and compassionate cultures that support staff are essential. And, you know, the converse is also true. The more staff who say their leaders don't behave in those four ways 
in those organizations subsequently what we see is higher levels of chronic work overload reported by staff, higher levels of stress and burnout. Patients report being treated, not being treated with the dignity, care, respect, compassion they wish for. Care quality is worse and avoidable patient mortality is significantly higher. Maybe um, you could just tell us a little bit, because when I sometimes have conversations with healthcare leaders or um, people um, in influential positions in systems like this, they say, well, this is all good and well, but I've just got too much to do. I've got too many KPIs. I've got too many um, problems around limited resources, around, um, you know, increasing curity of care for my patients. And I just don't have time to take that space um, to enact those behaviours that I feel like I should be doing, but I just can't. Do you have any thoughts around kind of a good response to that or um, anyone perhaps even some examples where people have managed to kind of buck that trend and have derived significant benefit perhaps? In relation to this issue of time I mean you know one of the most extraordinary I suppose periods in my career was not long after we'd begun this research we started to ask the question seeing so many healthcare teams under pressure to ask the question what happens if they stop and take time out? What happens if they stop just spinning the hamster wheel ever faster? What happens if they have, you know, teams have debriefs and after action reviews? And so we began to look at that. And we've looked at at that in all our studies of healthcare teams, executive teams since um, over the course of the last nearly 30, 35 years. And what the evidence shows is that teams that stop and take time out on a regular basis are much more productive, much more innovative, and the well-being of team members is much better. So one meta-analysis combining the data from 49 studies showed that teams that take time out on a regular basis are between, and this is astonishing, they're between 35 and 40% more productive. It's one of those, it's one of those counterintuitive findings that says if you stop spinning the hamster wheel, you actually end up being much more productive and and much more innovative because when we take that time to stop, reflect, come together, identify the problems, name them, we can start to then tame them and we can combine our efforts to address those problems. By the way, I've come to believe that the best barometer of a healthcare team's effectiveness is the extent to which it's developing and implementing new and improved ways of doing things. Innovation is the best barometer of a team's effectiveness. And as to individual leaders taking time out, what is your role as a leader? You know, your role as a leader primarily is to help people do their jobs more effectively. So given that we know that listening to them, seeking to understand their challenges, empathising with them, and then exploring how you can help them are the most important tasks of a leader, what else are you doing that's stopping you doing that that could be more important? I, we, have, we have videotapes of many, many um, meetings in healthcare organisations. And you see, you know, the majority of people sat with their eyes, you know, their eyes cast down, looking at the floor, clearly wishing that death would come soon rather than carry on in this meeting. You know, we're spending so much time in these meetings and in dealing with bureaucracy that's not actually helping us deliver high quality care 
continually improving care and compassionate care for patients. And the, and the direct route to achieving that is through support, is through working with and supporting the staff who deliver that care. And that's what we see again and again in the best performing organisations. Mm. It's interesting, I know, and this is probably a highly reductive um, way to view your extensive and very, very thoughtful um, research. But when I recall back to when I first heard you talk around this topic, in my mind, it landed in a very, very simple way, which is essentially if you treat people in a way that you would hope that they would treat patients, they will then go on to treat patients in that way. Um, and as I say, that's probably an oversimplification, but that's just the way I've kind of thought about it. No, absolutely. And what's really fascinating is more recent research over the last 10 or 15 years that shows that leadership self-compassion is a really important factor in influencing the compassion that those we lead show to patients that, that they serve. So really fascinating when leaders are self-compassionate when they are present with themselves and understand their challenges and bring a, a nurturing attitude to themselves rather than driving themselves continually, that communicates itself to those they lead who become more self-compassionate also. And then that directly translates into the compassion they show to patients. You know, one of the fascinating things about research, I think one of the most fascinating findings is how compassion is not some, it, it's not a resource that we're giving away. So, you know, if, if, you, if you look at the neuroscience studies that compare people asked to be empathic with people asked to be compassionate with that additional helping component, when we ask people to empathise with another in pain, that's associated with the activation of pain centres in the brain. But when we ask people to have the intent to empathize but also help that's associated with the activation of re the reward center in the brain because compassion is a, an evolutionary um, uh, emotional regulation system that's really important to us that enables us to feel a sense of belonging and connection with each other and so you know belonging belonging is hugely important in human behavior as you know we're more likely to die from the effects of loneliness than we are from or at least equally is the effects of smoking 15 cigarettes a day but what's fascinating is you look at if you look in the you know randomized control trial with general practitioners and nurses asked to be extra compassionate in their interactions with patients over a two-week period that has a significant impact on their own mental health lower levels of anxiety stress and depression so compassion and compassionate leadership and self-compassion are beneficial to us and to all around us. And that's incredibly encouraging and hopeful. That's great. And I think amazing also to have that breadth of evidence for things that perhaps people have been suspicious of being beneficial, perhaps, maybe a bit of controversy. You know, some people say, oh, this is mumbo jumbo, but so fantastic to have the actual data to be able to say that these are things that are worth investing effort, time, um, commitment to, um, to show direct benefit. And maybe a good segue at this particular point as well is when we start to think about um, our industry in terms of the pharmaceutical industry, when we think about pharmaceutical marketing communications, the kind of things that we do, and the kind of um, changes that we're able to leverage, or perhaps the kind of things that we can do, 
maybe looking at some of these individual level um, interventions. Is there anything else that you think could be helpful that could be perhaps um, an area where we or our clients could be able to have some, you know, some positive impact, I guess? Well, firstly, I, I think that I want to emphasise, well, two things, really. One is to say that people talk a lot about compassion fatigue. There's no evidence that compassion wears people out. On the contrary, it benefits people. What wears people out is chronic work overload. Trying to deliver healthcare in a situation where there are increasing demands and where we don't have the resources available. Let's be clear about what the problem is. It's lack of staffing, it's increasing demands, it's lack of equipment, training and so on. Um, and that compassion is not some soft cushion scented candles approach to leadership. It requires a lot more courage and authenticity than top down hierarchical leadership. And in that respect, I think the pharmaceutical industry um, has an important role to play in communicating that technological solutions to many of the problems we face are only going to be powerful and effective in combination with compassionate cultures in healthcare. That it's a recognition that drugs, technologies, interventions without compassion are going to be profoundly less effective, as we see from the research evidence on compassion in healthcare. And that therefore the role of the pharmaceutical industry, I think, is not only to promulgate or advocate for compassionate cultures, but even more importantly, to develop compassionate cultures within the industry. So to ensure that um, the pharmaceutical industry is modelling compassionate leadership and compassionate cultures in the way it functions. That's the most powerful way that the pharmaceutical industry can have an influence, I believe. Um, and, you know, in a way, some of the challenges we face more generally, not just in healthcare, but in society, as in across humanity, more generally require that we start to nurture compassionate cultures in all areas of human life. The, the problems we face, climate change, loss of biodiversity, pandemics, require collective solutions. They require us to work together across boundaries in, in a supportive, compassionate, listening, helpful way. Um, and I, I think some of the most remarkable initiatives that I see are in communities like um, Calderdale and Kirklees or um, in Wales or Louisville, Kentucky, where all of the organisations that affect human well-being are starting to work together. So healthcare, social care, local government, housing education, police, the voluntary sector, communities themselves working together to develop compassionate cultures in order to address the problems that we face. And so the more the pharmaceutical industry can be a part of that integrated solution across boundaries, um, the more progress we can make towards developing more compassionate communities, nations, and indeed humanity generally to address the problems we face. The more we create a, a movement towards developing 
more compassion in our communities and in our societies, the more able we will be to address some of the hugely wicked problems um, that we that we face at the moment. And every part of industry connected with healthcare has a huge role to play because I think healthcare is in a way the most important anchor institution in our society. You know, if you take the United Kingdom, something like 1.4 million people work in the, in the healthcare industry, in, in the public sector. That's one in 20 workers. If we create compassionate cultures, then and through compassionate leadership, they take that compassion back out into their families and communities. And after all, healthcare is the one institution that affects everybody throughout their lives. And if all of those people, I think it's something like a million people who use the National Health Service in England every 36 hours, if they encounter compassionate care, they take that back out into their families and communities. So the more the pharmaceutical industry can play a role by modelling compassionate cultures and helping to develop compassionate cultures in healthcare, the more we strengthen that movement towards creating more compassionate human societies. And that compassion extends not only to each other, but to the biodiversity around us and the planet that we all share. I think the most important intervention we have available to us as individuals is to learn to be and practice being self-compassionate. Um, after all, each of us is as deserving of love, of, uh, love and care as every other human being on the planet. And this is not about narcissistic self-indulgence. This is about taking care of ourselves in order that we can be present, caring and supportive with others. A great recommendation and uh, great advice for life. I'd perhaps at this particular point, it'd be really great to hear some examples where you've experienced amazing changes to systems or amazing models for doing things, uh, whether it's great teams, mm. great interventions, great um, cultures. Are there any that particularly come to your mind, you know, with that you've seen across the years that, <laughs> that you'd like to tell us a little bit about? There are so many, Freddie. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's one of the wonderful things for me about working in healthcare. You just encounter the most inspiring examples of individuals, teams, organisations everywhere. I mean, just what comes to mind, for example, is um, Berkshire Health, uh, Mental Health and Learning Disability Trust. Um, uh, Deborah Lee, the consultant clinical psychologist there, initiated a program with the support of the board five years ago to train all of their staff in compassionate leadership and they've been doing that training for five years they now have the lowest levels of staff stress and the highest levels of engagement of any trust uh, any, any healthcare organization in the country and they're rated outstanding in terms of care quality um, wales has committed to a 10-year strategy to develop compassionate leadership across the whole of health and social care in Wales. And not, not only that, but that's now, that's now moving out and affecting other areas. So, for example, um, I spoke recently to 600 of the most senior civil servants across Welsh government about compassionate leadership. Next week, I'm talking to head teachers across all of the schools in North Wales about compassionate leadership. So in Wales, there's this growing social movement to, de to develop compassionate leadership and cultures across 
all of public life. Um, I'm, you know, I, I, I encounter examples of individuals behaving in the most extraordinary, compassionate ways. I just had a, I got back home um, yesterday after a week of travelling to a letter from a leader in a healthcare organisation who told me that um, she had somebody working in her team who was really brilliant and had a hard time recently. And um, and this is not self-publicity, but she bought him a copy of my book and she wanted me to sign a card to say how um, important his compassion and his inspiration was to all of those around him. It's a little act of compassion by a very thoughtful leader. And I experience those day in, day out because compassion is, I think, the core value in healthcare. And people who are attracted to work in healthcare are people... For, who that, for whom that emotional regulation system is so important. And yet, you know, tragically, Freddie, if you look at it's in, in the 17 out of the 18 studies on compassion during medical training, it declines. So, you know, we're getting it, we're getting it so profoundly wrong. So it, it's inspiring to me, you know, to see examples like um, Dr. Alison Sykes' uh, emergency um, care physician in Preston in England who has over the last three or four years worked really hard to develop compassionate leadership training for foundation doctors in the northwest of the country. That's been so successful and it, she's extended it out now to more areas, to administrators, to trainers and we know from some of the feedback that it's having a, a, one, a wonderful effect for those who are receiving the training. And some of the doctors in training have said, as a result of the programme, it's persuaded them to stay in medicine. So, you know, I could give you, I could go on giving you examples and uh, we, we, we'd probably need a 10-hour <laughs> podcast to do that. <laughs> one of the things that I love around this whole topic and your kind of lens on it, your your theory, your your framework, is that... Often when you are in the midst of it, whether you're a healthcare provider on the shop floor or whether you're a leader, you know, you feel so disempowered that the system seems so big, that the problems are so unsolvable that you can become quite fatalistic about it and become sort of very cynical. And what I love about your framework is what it's what it leans into. And this is true for all of us, whether we're working in healthcare systems or whether we work in marketing or, uh, you know, banking or whatever is that we are all individuals that influence what defines culture so culture is defined by small acts of all of us whether it's you know me the way I write an email whether it's you having a very small word with someone in the coffee room that is what defines culture and so we are all actually have a responsibility but also are empowered to influence that by just making those changes in our daily life and it is amazing that I can totally relate to those points whereby if you make a positive change in your life to act in this way to try and do one or two things whether it's self-compassion whether it's compassion to others it is amazingly rewarding and it propagates more Mm. of the same behavior um and anyone can do that. Yeah, so I think that's absolutely right. Every interaction that every one of us has every day is an opportunity to shape 
the culture around us in our teams, in our organisations, in our communities, actually, how through how warm, kind, irritable, cynical, aggressive, compassionate we are, we know that the emotional and behavioural ripples get radiated out. At the same time, you know, we have to recognise that there are organisational level issues that, I suppose, prevent or dampen down that that kind of compassionate response. So, you know, the reasons why staff are so burned out and stressed is because fundamentally, I think, we're failing to meet their core needs at work. So we see from from all of the research evidence that um, people have three core needs at work, a need for autonomy and control, voice and influence, if you like, to work in cultures of, of justice and fairness and openness, they need to, we have a need, the second need we have is a need for belonging, to feel valued and respected and cared for. And the third is a need to feel effective, that we're able to deliver the high quality, compassionate care that we feel we should be delivering. And, uh, you know, what we have to do, I think, in organisations in order to create the fertile ground for staff health and well-being and compassion is not only to require that staff... Um, look after themselves and look after each other and are compassionate but we also have to change those working conditions which are so damaging um, the cultures of our organizations and the well-being of staff so giving people more voice and influence we talked about it already um, making sure that we are working towards the creation of just and fair cultures rather than fear and blame cultures which many healthcare professionals describe giving people more control over things like rotors and work schedules. And there are great examples of where all of these things are being done already. Creating more of a sense of belonging through building teamwork and compassionate cultures and helping people to feel more effective by addressing this fundamental issue of chronic staff work overload. I mean, it's the number one factor in staff stress and the number one reason why staff are quitting. And we don't address these issues simply by giving people mindfulness apps or yoga. And, and I'm not dismissing those. I've practiced meditation all my adult life. It's really important to me. But this isn't the solution to the problems of staff stress and work overload on their own. They're just ameliorative, if you like, as interventions. So it's both about our individual behaviours and how we change the working conditions within our organisations. Absolutely. And I think it's... um. So when I was uh, a junior doctor quite a few years now um, back, I remember we went through the whole resilience agenda, which was essentially, it was kind of to your point, really. It was sort of, we have a fundamental problem. It's a very big problem. And uh, there's an issue with our staff going off sick because essentially they are burnt out, they're overloaded. And... The solution to that was sort of, in a way, sticking plaster interventions around resilience, which was, in a way, sort of saying to the culture, saying to the people, the workforce, you know, this is your problem because you can't manage. And if you do some yoga, if you, you know, go for a run, eat healthily, stop smoking, you know, somehow that will change these fundamental problems. And I guess in a way, not to put words in your mouth, what we're saying is that it has to be more than that. It has to be a fundamental shift um, of so many things um, rather than just those sort of small piecemeal interventions. 
Yeah, so if you look at the interventions that organisations are putting in place to deal with the problems of burnout, what we see, we've, we've described it as tertiary, secondary and primary interventions. So tertiary interventions are focused on dealing with the, the results of staff stress, things like counselling programmes or employee assistance programmes. Secondary interventions are focused on helping people deal with stress, as you described, the, the notion of resilience. Um, prior, primary interventions are those that address the underlying work conditions that create stress, chronic work overload, poor leadership, poor team working, and so on. The most effective interventions for dealing with staff stress, the research evidence shows, are primary interventions, but they're the least used by organisations because they're seen as the, you know, it's, I, I understand why. It's just much easier to offer a mindfulness app than it is to address issues of chronic work overload. So um, it's really important that we, we recognise that those, second, those secondary and tertiary interventions are valuable, but on their own, they're not going to solve the problems of increasing levels of staff stress. We have to address the underlying work conditions which are failing to meet the core needs of our staff. And you refer to your experience as a junior doctor. You know, we describe those three core needs as the ABC of core needs, autonomy and control, belonging and contribution. And the job of a junior doctor uh, in the report that um, I had the privilege of producing with my much missed colleague, Dame Denise Coyer, a few years ago for the General Medical Council, we describe the, the job of junior doctors as almost perfectly failing to meet those core work needs of people at work. And this is for incredibly bright, motivated people at the beginning of their career. So, so focusing on how we get those working conditions right, along with compassionate leadership. Well, in a way, you can say that compassionate leadership is about focusing on ensuring we are getting those working conditions right is essential for dealing with this problem of healthcare professional burnout. Yeah, and I would, the paper you refer to, which um, is enormously valuable, I would I would um, urge anyone to quickly Google it now listening. So Caring for Doctors, Caring for Patients. It was a, a report for um, by the GMC, which um, Professor uh, Michael West here, um, I think, were you co-chair or I can't remember, I'm afraid, I can't remember your... co co Co-chair with Dame, with the wonderful Dame Denise Coyer. Um, yeah. It's a wealth of amazing stats um, of background around where we're going wrong, but also some really great case examples of where perhaps care can be improved or things can be done better. So it's a really great paper. So I would I would urge everyone to read that. Um, now, Michael, we're going to try a new thing with you, if that's all right. Just before we wrap up, we're going to we're going to try a quick. Um, a quick fire round, if that's all right. Um, uh, and I'm going to ask you a few questions and we're just going to look for very, very simple, quick answers. Um, and we'll just see how it goes, if that's all right. Are you, are you up for it? Absolutely. <laughs> Great. OK, so maybe you could tell us one key insight or solution that you think the audience will take away from this podcast. Compassion is core to being human and self-compassion is core to our own well-being and our experience of this amazing life. Great, thank you. And maybe your favourite research or evidence insight in this area? That when we are compassionate to others, 
there is a huge benefit benefit to us in terms of our well-being okay interesting maybe your favorite long read or kind of book relevant to this area and self-promotion is allowed within this context just to uh just in case that was going to be your direction of travel I, I had a huge, I had the huge privilege of writing this book, Compassionate Leadership, Sustaining Wisdom, Humanity and Presence in Health and Social Care. And I've been just so delighted at how many people have got the book and are using it to help help their practice in healthcare. Um, I was particularly motivated and informed by a wonderful book by Paul Gilbert, the real guru of compassion. Uh, called Compassionate Mind. Well, I would um, second both of those recommendations with both being incredibly important, not just if you are a healthcare provider, but also um, for all of us as humans, but also in whatever industry or work we do. So that's um, that's those two great recommendations. Thank you. We've been enormously grateful to hear your perspectives around this whole topic um, to um to learn from your wealth of experience and also knowledge in this area so we really are so grateful and i really hope we can leverage our capabilities our capacity our skills experience in our in our industry and also the industry of our clients to try and join you in trying to make all of these systems both better for the people who work in them but also crucially of course for um, improving outcomes um, for patients and citizens whether they're here in the UK or whether they're elsewhere out in the whole uh, across the whole globe so um, thank you Michael and helping with this Um, it's been an absolute pleasure wonderful to reconnect with you after the last few years and um, thank you so much it's been a privilege and a pleasure to talk with you Freddie thank you